Book One, Chapter Twenty Four of Off on a Comet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Off on a Comet by Jules Verne. Translated by Anonymous. Book One, Chapter Twenty Four A Sledge Ride. Formentera was at once recognized by Servadac and the Count as the name of one of the smallest of the Balearic Islands. It was more than probable that the unknown writer had thence sent out the mysterious documents, and from the message just come to hand by the carrier pigeon, it appeared all but certain that at the beginning of April, a fortnight back, he had still been there. In one important particular the present communication differed from those that had preceded it, it was written entirely in French, and exhibited none of the ecstatic exclamations in other languages that had been remarkable in the two former papers. The concluding line, with its intimation of failing provisions, amounted almost to an appeal for help. Captain Servadac briefly drew attention to these points, and concluded by saying, My friends, we must, without delay, hasten to the assistance of this unfortunate man. For my part, said the Count, I am quite ready to accompany you. It is not unlikely that he is not alone in his distress. Lieutenant Procope expressed much surprise. We must have passed close to Formentera, he said, when we explored the site of the Bialaric Isles. This fragment must be very small. It must be smaller than the remaining splinter of Gibraltar or Theota. Otherwise, surely it would have never escaped our observation. However small it may be, replied Servadac, we must find it. How far off do you suppose it is? It must be a hundred and twenty leagues away, said the lieutenant, thoughtfully, and I do not quite understand how you would propose to get there. Why, on skates, of course. No difficulty in that, I should imagine, answered Servadac, and he appealed to the Count for confirmation of his opinion. The Count assented. But Procope looked doubtful. Your enterprise is generous, he said, and I should be most unwilling to throw any unnecessary obstacle in the way of its execution. But, pardon me, if I submit to you a few considerations which to my mind are very important. First of all, the thermometer is already down to twenty-two degrees below zero, and the keen wind from the south is making the temperature absolutely unendurable. In the second place, Supposing you travel at a rate of twenty leagues a day, you would be exposed for at least six consecutive days. And thirdly, your expedition will be of small avail unless you convey provisions not only for yourselves, but for those whom you hope to relieve. We can carry our own provisions on our backs in knapsacks, interposed Servadac, quickly, unwilling to recognize any difficulty in the way. Granted that you can, answered the lieutenant, quietly, but where— on this level ice-field, will you find shelter in your periods of rest? You must perish with cold. You will not have the chance of digging out ice-huts like the Eskimo. As to the rest, said Servadac, we shall take none. We shall keep on our way continuously. By traveling day and night without intermission, we shall not be more than three days in reaching Formentera. Believe me, persisted the lieutenant, calmly, your enthusiasm is carrying you too far. The feat you propose is impossible, but even conceding the possibility of your success in reaching your destination, what service do you imagine that you, 
half starved and half frozen yourself, could render to those who are already perishing by want and exposure. You would only bring them away to die. The obvious and dispassionate reasoning of the lieutenant could not fail to impress the minds of those who listened to him. The impracticability of the journey became more and more apparent. Unprotected on that drear expanse, any traveler must assuredly succumb to the snowdrifts that were continually being whirled across it. But Hector Servadac, animated by the generous desire of rescuing a suffering fellow creature, could scarcely be brought within the bounds of common sense. Against his better judgment he was still bent upon the expedition, and Ben Zoof declared himself ready to accompany his master in the event of Count Timoshev hesitating to encounter the peril which the undertaking involved. But the Count entirely repudiated all idea of shirking from what, quite as much as the captain, he regarded as a sacred duty, and turning to Lieutenant Procope, told him that unless some better plan could be devised, he was prepared to start off at once and make the attempt to skate across to Formentera. The Lieutenant, who was lost in thought, made no immediate reply. "'I wish we had a sledge,' said Ben Zoof. "'I dare say that a sledge of some sort could be contrived.' said the Count, but then we should have no dogs or reindeer to draw it. Why not rough-shoe the two horses? They would never be able to endure the cold, objected the Count. Never mind, said Servadac, let us get our sledge and put them to the test. Something must be done. I think, said Lieutenant Procope, breaking his thoughtful silence, that I can tell you of a sledge already provided for your hand, and I can suggest a motive power surer and swifter than horses. "'What do you mean?' was the eager inquiry. "'I mean the Doberna's yawl,' answered the lieutenant. "'I have no doubt that the wind would carry her rapidly along the ice.' The idea seemed admirable. Lieutenant Procope was well aware to what marvelous perfection the Americans had brought their sail-sledges, and had heard how in the vast prairies of the United States they had been known to outvie the speed of an express train, occasionally attaining the rate of more than a hundred miles an hour. The wind was still blowing hard from the south, and assuming that the yawl could be propelled with a velocity of about fifteen or at least twelve leagues an hour, he reckoned that it was quite possible to reach Formentera within twelve hours, that is to say, in a single day between intervals of sunrise and sunset. The yawl was about twelve feet long, and capable of holding five or six people. The addition of a couple of iron runners would be all that was requisite to convert it into an excellent sledge, which, if a sail were hoisted, might be deemed certain to make a rapid progress over the smooth surface of the ice. For the protection of the passengers it was proposed to erect a kind of wooden roof lined with strong cloth. Beneath this could be packed a supply of provisions, some warm furs, some cordials, and a portable stove to be heated by spirits of wine. For the outward journey the wind was as favorable as could be desired, but it was to be apprehended that, unless the direction of the wind should change, the return would be a matter of some difficulty. A system of tacking might be carried out to a certain degree, but it was not likely that the yawl would answer her helm in any way corresponding to what would occur in the open sea. Captain Servadac, however, would not listen to any representation of probable difficulties. The future, he said, must provide for itself. The engineer and several of the sailors set vigorously to work, and before the close of the day the yawl was furnished with a pair of stout iron runners, curved upwards in front, 
and fitted with a metal skull designed to assist in maintaining the directness of her course. The roof was put on, and underneath it were stored the provisions, the wraps, and the cooking utensils. A strong desire was expressed by Lieutenant Procope that he should be allowed to accompany Captain Servadac instead of Count Timascheff. It was unadvisable for all three of them to go, as, in case of there being several persons to be rescued, the space at their command would be quite inadequate. The lieutenant urged that he was the most experienced seaman, and as such was best qualified to take command of the sledge and the management of the sails. And as it was not to be expected that Servadac would resign his intention of going in person to relieve his fellow countrymen, Procope submitted his own wishes to the Count. The Count was himself very anxious to have his share in the philanthropic enterprise, and demurred considerably to the proposal. He yielded, however, after a time, to Servadac's representations that in the event of the expedition proving disastrous, the little colony would need his services alike as governor and protector, and overcoming his reluctance to be left out of the perilous adventure, was prevailed upon to remain behind for the general good of the community at Nina's Hive. At sunrise on the following morning, the 16th of April, Captain Servadac and the lieutenant took their places in the yawl. The thermometer was more than twenty degrees below zero, and it was with deep emotion that their companions beheld them thus embarking upon the vast white plain. Ben Zuf's heart was too full for words. Count Timascheff could not forbear pressing his two brave friends to his bosom. The Spaniards and the Russian sailors crowded round for a farewell shake of the hand, and little Nina, her great eyes flooded with tears, held up her face for a parting kiss. The sad scene was not permitted to be long. The sail was quickly hoisted, and the sledge, just as if it had expanded a huge white wing, was in a little while carried far away beyond the horizon. Light and unimpeded, the yawl scudded on with incredible speed. Two sails, a brigantine and a jib, were arranged to catch the wind to the greatest advantage, and the travelers estimated that their progress would be a little under the rate of twelve leagues an hour. The motion of their novel vehicle was singularly gentle, the oscillation being less than that of an ordinary railway carriage, while the diminished force of gravity contributed to the swiftness. Except that the clouds of ice dust raised by the metal runners were an evidence that they had not actually left the level surface of the ice, the captain and the lieutenant might again and again have imagined that they were being conveyed through the air in a balloon. Lieutenant Procope, with his head all muffled up for fear of frostbite, took an occasional peep through an aperture that had been intentionally left in the roof, and by the help of a compass, maintained a proper and straight course for Formentera. Nothing could be more dejected than the aspect of that frozen sea. Not a single living creature relieved the solitude. Both the travelers, Procope from a scientific point of view, Servadac from an aesthetic, were alike impressed by the solemnity of the scene, and where the lengthened shadow of the sail cast upon the ice by the oblique rays of the setting sun had disappeared, and day had given place to night. The two men, drawn together as by an involuntary impulse, mutually held each other's hands in silence. There had been a new moon on the previous evening, but, in the absence of moonlight, the constellations shone with remarkable brilliancy. The new pole star close upon the horizon was resplendent, and even had Lieutenant Procope been destitute of a compass, he would have had no difficulty in holding his course by the guidance of that alone. However great was the distance that separated Gallia from the sun, 
It was, after all, manifestly insignificant in comparison with the remoteness of the nearest of the fixed stars. Observing that Servadac was completely absorbed in his own thoughts, Lieutenant Procope had leisure to contemplate some of the present perplexing problems, and to ponder over the true astronomical position. The last of the three mysterious documents had represented that Gallia, in conformity with Kepler's second law, had traveled along her orbit during the month of March twenty millions of leagues less than she had done in the previous month. Yet, in the same time, her distance from the sun had nevertheless been increased by thirty-two millions of leagues. She was now, therefore, in the center of the zone of telescopic planets that revolve between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter, and had captured for herself a satellite which, according to the document, was Nerina one of the asteroids most recently identified. If thus, then, it was within the power of the unknown writer to estimate with such apparent certainty Gallia's exact position. Was it not likely that his mathematical calculations would enable him to arrive at some definite conclusion as to the date at which she would begin to approach the sun? Nay, it was not to be expected that he had already estimated, with sufficient approximation to truth, what was to be the true length of the Gallian year? So intently had they each separately been following their own train of thought, that daylight reappeared almost before the travelers were aware of it. On consulting their instruments, they found that they must have traveled close upon a hundred leagues since they started, and they resolved to slacken their speed. The sails were accordingly taken in a little, and in spite of the intensity of the cold, the explorers ventured out of their shelter, in order that they might reconnoitre the plain, which was apparently as boundless as ever. It was completely desert, not so much as a single point of rock relieved the bare uniformity of its surface. "'Are we not considerably to the west of Formentera?' asked Servadac, after examining the chart. "'Most likely,' replied Procope. "'I have taken the same course as I should have done at sea, and I have kept some distance to the windward of the island.' we can bear straight down upon it whenever we like. Bear down, then, now, and as quickly as you can. The yawl was at once put with her head to the northeast, and Captain Servadac, in defiance of the icy blast, remained standing at the bow, his gaze fixed on the horizon. All at once his eye brightened. Look, look, he exclaimed, pointing to a faint outline that broke the monotony of the circle that divided the plain from the sky. In an instant the lieutenant had seized his telescope. "'I see what you mean,' said he. "'It is a pylon that has been used for some geodesic survey.' The next moment the sail was filled, and the yawl was bearing down upon the object with inconceivable swiftness, both Captain Servadac and the lieutenant too excited to utter a word. Mile after mile the distance rapidly grew less, and as they drew nearer the pylon they could see that it was erected on a low mass of rocks that was the sole interruption to the dull level of the field of ice. No wreath of smoke rose above the little island. It was manifestly impossible, they conceived, that any human being could there have survived the cold. The sad presentiment forced itself upon their minds that it was a mere cairn to which they had been hurrying. Ten minutes later, and they were so near the rock that the lieutenant took in his sail, convinced that the impetus already attained would be sufficient to carry him to the land. Servadac's heart bounded as he caught sight of a fragment of blue canvas fluttering in the wind from the top of the pylon. It was all that now remained of the French national standard. 
At the foot of the pylon stood a miserable shed, its shutters tightly closed. No other habitation was to be seen. The entire island was less than a quarter of a mile in circumference, and the conclusion was irresistible that it was the sole surviving remnant of Formentera, once a member of the Balearic archipelago. To leap on shore, to clamber over the slippery stones, and to reach the cabin was but the work of a few moments. The worm-eaten door was bolted on the inside. Servadac began to knock with all his might. No answer. Neither shouting nor knocking could draw forth a reply. Let us force it open, Procope, he said. The two men put their shoulders to the door, which soon yielded to their vigorous efforts, and they found themselves inside the shed, and in almost total darkness. By opening the shutter they admitted what daylight they could. At first sight the wretched place seemed to be deserted. The little grate contained the ashes of a fire long since extinguished. All looked black and desolate. Another instant's investigation, however, revealed a bed in the extreme corner, and extended on the bed a human form. Dead, sighed Servadac, dead of cold and hunger. Lieutenant Procope bent down and anxiously contemplated the body. No, he is alive, he said, and drawing a small flask from his pocket, he poured a few drops of brandy between the lips of the senseless man. There was a faint sigh, followed by a feeble voice, which uttered the one word, Galia? Yes, yes, Galia, echoed Servadac, eagerly. My comet, my comet, said the voice, so low as to be almost inaudible, and the unfortunate man relapsed again into unconsciousness. Where have I seen this man? thought Servadac to himself. His face is strangely familiar to me. But it was no time for deliberation. Not a moment was to be lost in getting the unconscious astronomer away from his desolate quarters. He was soon conveyed to the yawl. His books, his scanty wardrobe, his papers, his instruments, and the blackboard which had served for his calculations were quickly collected. The wind, by a fortuitous providence, had shifted into a favorable quarter. They set their sail with all speed and ere long were on their journey back from Formentera. Thirty-six hours later, the brave travelers were greeted by the acclamations of their fellow colonists, who had been most anxiously awaiting their reappearance, and the still senseless savant, who had neither opened his eyes nor spoken a word throughout the journey, was safely deposited in the warmth and security of the great hall of Nina's Hive. End of Book One, Chapter Twenty-Four End of First Book